welcome to the ARC Audio Book Club, in which we end a cycle of two years today. Two years ago, we started out at the same place, lesser equipped, we didn't have any good microphones, but we started out reading I Love Dick, where we were visited by Emma Halton, and last year, around the same time, we read and discussed Aliens and Anorexia. Now, two years later, we've met to discuss Torpor by Chris Kraus, which is the last book in the trilogy, but it's the prequel to the other books. It was written in 2006 and describes the relationship between her and Sylvia Lotringer. We assume so. I assume so. Yeah, I assume. But we'll go back to that later. Yeah. We have Sarah Amani, as always. Hi. Macon Holt. Hello. And Neos Casanova Vico. Hi. <laughs> so, in Torpor, we have these two anti-heroes called Sylvie and Jerome, who have a lot of com- in common with Chris and Silver that we know from the other two books. But here we get the history of their relationship, of how they meet and how they live together and how unhappy they are. It's a really dark book and it's also a really fun book. Um, this, what is it called? Gallo humor. Gallows humor, yeah. Gallows humor, yeah. And they, uh, they're going to Romania to adopt an orphan. Yeah, despite the fact that it's legally impossible to adopt anybody from Romania at that point in time. And they sort of know that <laughs> in retrospect, but... Mm. And going in as well, kind yeah. of. But no one's saying it. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't know when they're going there. They kind of know. They know that they haven't got a plan for how to go about it. Mm. They set out to ab- uh, adopt this child in oh. Romania. Um, baby grabbers. And they don't succeed. No. But along the way, <laughs> they learn so many things. <laughs> so a thing I noticed about this book is that it's a lot more fun than the other books. I mean, there's a great sense of humor in all three books, mm. but this one is a lot darker. Mm. And I've read it, I think, three times now. And every time I've read it, it's a different experience. Um, I think the second time I read it, it was just really sad. And this time it was just, it was fantastic. I mean, it's still so dark, but it's so fun. Mm. One of the opening lines in one of the first chapters is there's nothing more ridiculous than a middle-aged couple, than a childless middle-aged couple with a dog. Yeah. Yeah. And then it just goes on from there. (laughs) Um, We have a dog, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) So did you guys like it? I I liked it a lot. I thought it was... um... I thought, as you say, yeah, it's it's much more. It's certainly compared to Aliens and Anorexia, it's a lot more immediate fun. Yeah, and there's yeah. a lot less theory. Yeah. Um, yeah, but still, it's thick with theory mm-hmm. the whole way through. I think, but like less, there's less essay use of theory. I think it's more integrated yeah. in the narrative, which makes it then easier to read. I guess, or like it's just more direct. You can really connect it. Mm-hmm to the narrative so yeah. I guess it's just it becomes like way easier to yeah yeah rather than these massive breaks with block quotes which mm. is just not no one reads those and also maybe because this is written at a later mm. date she feels more secure with her knowledge and doesn't feel like she needs to prove that she is actually mm. yeah and normally like if I read a novel about a relationship between a man and a woman and they're married and and they're Americans, yeah. <laughs> I would be turned off already there. Mm. But there's something about it's so dark and it's they're not succeeding. And the, To be fair, Silver is a French intellectual into S&M. 
True. <laughs> and the road to happiness isn't like we just need to talk to each other and like communication will solve everything. They're both like hermetically sealed in their own worlds. They don't really communicate. They fight when they do and their fights solve nothing. Um, and it doesn't bring them closer and they're just, they're miserable. But it's it's a really easy, recognizable miserability. Mis- misery. misery. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And also, they just they just get on with it in spite of their misery. They they hate it. Well, they don't hate each other, but they're not. They certainly don't get on. Um, and then they get a dog, or they she has three abortions, and then they go to try adopt a baby. Yeah, and that's the thing about this book. There's also a lot more dog in this book than in the other books. It's actually quite a bit more dog. And it's yeah. I, I was thinking when I read it uh, because it's so much about their dog. The dog is like the connection between mm. them. That it, like Laurie Anderson made this movie about her dog mm. uh, called Heart of a Dog, and Eileen Miles uh, published a book last year called Afterglow mm. about her dog. And Donna Haraway has a bunch of stuff about companion species. Mm. But dogs making kins, yeah, yeah. I thought Do- it, I thought it was. She has a, a wonderful Marxist analysis of how dogs are being abused and exploited by the system. Mm-hmm. She's very pro dog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is they're equivalent to like a dog lady. Now that there are no cats. It must be that. <laughs> <laughs> Writers like dogs. They do. Virginia Woolf wrote Flush about a dog. They have to be able to go outside, so dogs insist upon that. Oh, yeah. Mm. Nice link to the world. connection to reality. <laughs> or I have to leave my house. immediate external world. I'm just going to read this quote about the dog, because um, it's hilarious. Uh, Sylvie's views on interspecies sex were mixed. Allowing their little dog to hump her leg was probably perverse, but still, she wanted to be a conduit for canine happiness. And that's a a thing I noticed about the book is that I thought it started out very cynical Mm. about um, she's mentioning this TV show called 30-something. And then she's talking about the people around her and how they're busy with their lives and all this. And she has this really cynical gaze upon her surroundings. But as the novel progressed... um, it became a lot more like naive, like this very sweet, very, uh, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. What, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Until the end, when it becomes much more cynical again. Yeah. And it, but also like more pragmatic, I think, than cynical perhaps at the end. Because mm. mm. there's no, because cynical always has that like uh, edge of, I've been disappointed by the thing that I was, oh, I'm going to try and game this to get what I need. Um, but by the end of the book, it's just, um, it's like, you know, Maybe I need to reevaluate what I need and actually change what I need to fit the world that's actually around me. And mm. in some ways, that's actually, there's some, some nice closure to that as mm. well, even though it's quite dark and sounds a little bit lonely, but also sounds sensible. Or yeah. yeah. Is that the part mm-hmm. about like the dog will eventually die and Sylvie will leave Jerome? Isn't that the one that yeah. will be yeah. years later? Yeah. yeah, and then there'll be like the, has- the, the great sex in the Bay Area, but yeah. uh, mm. with very like a lot of emotional distance. Yeah, so it's anticipating mm. the, Bay Area. the next two books. <laughs> yeah. Another thing is that I automatically read this as a part of the trilogy, mm. as a prequel yeah. to the other two books, yeah. because there's yeah. so many reference points that just make it these two people, but. But is it really a trilogy? Trilogy, um, I think it is. Yeah, I I think it, it made me appreciate way more aliens and anorexia, and it gave me like a lot of coherence through the three stories. Um, and I think it's a very nice way to do it, like going backwards on time. 
because it starts with I love dick, that would be like closer to us in time. Mm. And then you just go back, kind of, with aliens and anorexia and then torpor. No, aliens and anorexia happens after I love dick. I mean, I mean, no, I mean, the, the story told in the books. Yes. It does? Aliens and anorexia, I'm pretty sure, happens after I love dick. Yeah. Okay. I understood it before. I also thought it was before. I she goes to Ber- Berlin, right? But that's and in like '98. I love Dick is in '94 till seven. Yeah. Okay. I understand. Yeah. Okay. No, that's later. This is falling. <laughs> <laughs> this is all falling anyway, apart. Anyway, <laughs> actually, this refers basically to the whole the whole formal structure of the project, which was the. Para, para, parataxis. Parataxis. Yep. Which is a... a In a, page a, 88. On page 88 of this book. But at least this helped me, when I read it as a part of the trilogy and as a prequel, it helped me understand why the mm. narrator in uh, I Love Dick leaves her husband. Yeah. Because mm. in, yeah. in that book, I was like, he seems pretty great. Yeah, yeah. He seems great. And then she's like, then she suddenly remembers all the times that his kid was around and she had to leave the house yeah. and all these things and... It's just mentioned very fast. And here we get the full story and it mm. sounds miserable. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. that's that's one of the wonderful things about the trilogy and why it has to be considered as a, as a trilogy is because you have, like the central moment is I love Dick. That's mm. like the kind of the, this focal point, the high tension point of the entire yeah. thing. The point of basically every character becoming who they are at the end of the trilogy mm. is in the first part, which is a lovely way to formally do some parallax in the, <laughs> in the thing, Yeah, which we'll explain more later, I guess. Um, and then you like, you get the way that she sees herself being more fully developed in Aliens and Anorexia in relation to Simone Weil, in relation to this kind of hero figure who she's measuring herself against. And then you get this emotional backstory to explain out of Dick, and that's just so structurally significant to understanding of these books, I think. So, yeah. And then in Aliens and Anorexia, we have this... So you were talking about I Love Dick, right? Mm. And then in Aliens and Anorexia, we have this where she's just full-blown academic i would say yeah maybe mm. it's not academic but Close we're to, just yeah. doing all the things that it seems she's been hindered in mm, doing mm. all the previous years and the previous books uh now it's just her and what she has to say and i like the building the construction of those three works how she does that yeah um i read uh according to the info and i think it was mit press who seems to be the distributor yeah, yeah, of this, this is, novel yeah. um, that it was her most personal novel to date which is interesting because the characters have these new names uh, Sylvie and Chris and they're named after this couple in George Perec's first novel called Things a story of the 60s at least that's the American title um, that I haven't read yet has anyone here read it? I've read a bit about it yeah. and it being like basically just about just documenting this couple's attempt to accumulate and accrue things by which they can define themselves and kind of becoming like more and more vacuous and unhappy as they do it. Yeah, it's a little bit about this rootless academic couple, right? Uh, That are always mentioned as Silver, uh, Sylvie, Sylvie and Jerome, (laughs) which this has in common with them. Yeah. Uh, But then I was starting to wonder, is Chris a pseudonym or is Sylvie? (laughs) And what does that do to the novel? it would sort of create this veil because 
as a reader, I think you always automatically want to understand what mm. is going on, like what is real. And as soon as you know that an author has drawn mm. from their own experiences, then you're just like digging for this and like latching on to this. But I think it's really interesting uh, if Sylvie or uh, of Chris, and if you can even talk about it that way, because mm. um, I mean, it's still different books. I'm not sure what you mean. <laughs> Do you mean Chris, the author? No, Chris and the other books could be a pseudonym oh, okay. oh, for yeah. Chris. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, think it, I think it probably is. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Yeah. in if if you write like Karl Wojnarowski or Karl Uwe would be a pseudonym. If that that's probably not the right word, but it's definitely not one to one. The author there will be some kind of. I don't know what he would say about that though, but that's a different conversation. I don't know what he would say either. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm saying. I would say definitely in these books, Chris is a pseudonym. I would I would agree with that. Like it's definitely. There's some distance because she's thinking about the like, even like the first device of the letters. It's always like how would some write about the, how would someone write about themselves in a letter? It's even if they were real letters, that's also a kind of a distancing move. So mm. she's never thinking about how do I represent, represent myself in a story first. She's going first via another medium. So she's always like going through a level of representation, um, mm-hmm. which is extra to just making a novel. Um, so I'd say certainly it's a pseudonym in yeah. this one. I also think, or at least how I read it, it was like from the trilogy, Torpor is the more, like maybe most conventional novel, mm. as in, you know, form. Yeah. So it kind of also requires that, mm. you know, so mm. it, using other names also like puts, it's part of this like form of like novel where like everything is fiction or like, mm. and I, I just thought it as a way to, just like make more coherent this like novel form while maybe the other two books have another kind you wouldn't maybe call it straight novels but would be more like pistoler Mm. yeah yeah or like or like autofiction yeah yeah yeah. and then the other is like more i read it like aliens and anorexia for me was more kind of like notebooks Mm -hmm. so it's like (coughs) three different kind of genres yeah mm. and i think the fact that she's just found two different names mm. kind of makes even more coherent or like has to do with this form yeah yeah i think that makes um, sense yeah and then we have the dog who's still called the same name so the dog is creating like this point of identity yeah like it's it's the same dog so the dog is both lily in in sylvie and jerome and also in um Chris and and uh, Sylvia's life, there was the same yes. name of a dog. Yes. So this is the the dog is the center of the universe. Yeah. Mm. The dog is 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 the parallax of holding <laughs> <laughs> the pieces together. Yeah. <laughs> and yet we know from Aliens and Anorexia, the dog can't last forever. Yeah. Oh, that was really sad. But I think I, I think you're you're right. I think like um. I think it's quite interesting when, because uh, this, you know, Chris Cross is being held up as this sort of like paragon of uh, the whole auto fiction movement, hmm. but like she's playing so much with the distancing of herself from the from the from the character um, throughout all of the books, and she's almost like daring you to read this novel as auto fiction because like you could just not, mm-hmm. you could just read about a sad couple, yeah, going to Romania <laughs> when no one speaks French. <laughs> Oh, Romanians not speaking French. Yeah. So I think I noticed, um, 
because I've just really closely studied aliens and anorexia um, where, um, where she's in Berlin mm -hmm. and she's walking along uh, the Kudam, which is spelled mm -hmm. wrong. In this one, uh, six years later, published six uh, published six years later, Kudam is spelled right. But then there are other mistakes, uh, like small mistakes. But like she's mentioning the Czech Republic uh, that wasn't established until a few years later when she was there. And the thing is that she's in Romania at one point. I think it's in 91. And she's saying that uh, that was the year everyone was uh, singing along to uh, Celine Dion's Titanic song, mm. This My Heart Will Go On. Mm. And as a reader, you're, no, this cannot be, because that was at least five, six years later. Um, you can't remember this. This can't be. <laughs> because, I mean, a part of the novel is that she, mm. it's retrospect, um, mm. everything that's happened. But to me, that started, uh, there were, but then she'll get it also right. Like she'll say that everyone was listening to Smells Like Teen Spirit, which was that summer. In 91? Yeah. Okay. But yeah. she's but she's writing, she's not writing the book from that year. Like she is narrating history in a way. So the fact that she's referencing to the song, I don't know when the song was published, but it could be that she's just referring Titanic as a way to make some kind of like cultural reference. Perhaps, but to me it started like when these things were a little off. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, what does that do to the novel well, when the memories are off and the facts are wrong and she rem what she remembers is not true? And it started like disturbing the reading of like, is this some sort of huge trauma? Uh, <laughs> that is sort of no, but I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it does do something to the reader of like pushing I mean, everything a little bit off. When you know that this can't be a picture, I mean, it is some sort of trauma. That's part of this like parataxis thing mm. that she explained. That, and at some point she mentions this idea of like going back through history to narrate someone's trauma. Mm. Maybe it's also so, to do. Sorry, no. <laughs> Maybe it's also to do with throughout the book. She sort of. The story of her relationship with Jerome runs parallel to the story of Europe and the fall of the uh, the what's it the, Cold, the end of the Cold War, the, the end of the Soviet Union, yes. and the and the fall of the Berlin Wall. All of that and everything <laughs> that happens, and she keeps questioning. She she sees there's a there's a great part in the book where she's sitting in uh, Felix Guitari's living room watching mm. the broadcast mm. from the thing in Romania where there's a big revolution or something going on and she's questioning like so what are we watching when was this broadcast did this really happen she mm. keeps questioning everything and um, yeah. <laughs> trying to go back to it because I do have a point with this so she she writes this several years after she's her marriage is dissolved and she's written these other two books and it reads in a way like kind of as I don't closure is close yeah. enough I think mm -hmm. even if uh, depending on whether that's a thing or not mm. and sort of retells the story but in this book she really knows what Sylvia's thinking all the time and she knows why he reacts or she thinks she does but she has an idea of why he reacts the way he does and everything he's been through and she considers it and she sort of tells the story of their marriage and it ending and she sort of like presents why this couldn't work and I think a lot of the whole sort of wrong memories and wrong histories and 
weird stories has to do with that. Like she's remembering everything. So even though she's sort of presenting, this is how mm. the Soviet Union ended and this yeah. is how my marriage ended. All the yeah. memories mm. are mixed up and she's not quite sure. And I think yeah. it's, I mean, yeah, that's a, that sounds like a no, very valid point. Also yeah. like to frame like, you know, 97 is the year that the trilogy ends in Islands and Anorexia. So the in scene, so by well, it was a it was a big Christmas movie, wasn't it? It it, it rolled over, no. <laughs> anyway, no, but I think that's a really good point of filling out the gaps and all the blanks, yeah. mm. which doesn't necessarily, I think, exclude the trauma. Mm. Oh, not of at the all. Whole yeah, thing. No. Um, maybe trauma is too harsh a word. Uh, no, but there's like something it. that has to be <laughs> yeah. like understood and like worked. Yeah, on exactly. And, I think like process. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think also like then in the the wider context of the entire thing, so like her whole appraisal of Jerome's personality mm. is he is a product of World War Two, and World War Two is just then like not only does it cast through his entire life, it casts through the entirety of European history yeah. up mm. until the point where she's sitting in Felix Guattari's um, living room, uh, trying to like process like the end of the circumstances produced by that traumatic point, and so like everything that makes him kind of fucked up to be in a relationship with is also at the Berlin Wall, but the Berlin Wall came down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's also a thing of like this uh, woman um, reducing all her husband's, ex-husband's like emotions and reactions and everything is the Second World War. And I'm not yeah. trying to like, <laughs> like downplay the impacts of that but everything is explained through this. But I think that's also very much how he sees himself, or at exactly. least. Mm. But, in but the book it yeah, is. in the yeah. book it is. Yeah. That's how she presents him as yeah. seeing himself. Because yeah. yeah. for me, it did make a lot of sense. It really explained a lot and from the other two books. And I kind of felt that it like the whole like Holocaust thing and like the whole uh, war world that is really like explained here, like in relation to Jerome's personality. I don't know, maybe it was like kind of me also filling gaps or whatever, but I felt that it's that kind of thing, you know, when you like someone and you tend to just ignore certain things in order to make sense of your yeah. present. Yeah. And I think like in relation to what you just said, Sarah, this makes a lot of sense because it's like now she is presenting something that she's been trying to ignore a lot, which in a way might take a lot from the reader because it just comes maybe as a surprise or maybe not as a surprise, but it's it seems like a really big topic. But for her as a narrator, it's just like feeling like presenting a part that hasn't been presented before, mm. but that for the narration just like makes sense. Yeah. That mm. it's necessary to explain, but it's just like very in contrast with mm. the other two parts maybe. But I thought it was like very interesting. Yeah. And I did like... It just, it at some point it seemed like, oh, they're going back to this. But at the same time, it just like made sense all the time for me to read it. Like it didn't like, I didn't think it was too much at the same time. Oh mm -hmm. yeah, no, never. And I really yeah. like this kind of like historical mm -hmm. perspective on everything. <laughs> <laughs> and also the eyewitness account of, especially the sitting in the living room mm -hmm. watching the, the revolution fall. It's mm -hmm. like reading classy gossip because it's a bunch of intellectuals mm -hmm. yeah and that being of no interest to uh Guattari's young wife Josephine yeah, yeah. The hair, yeah. But speaking of that I uh I was like browsing through Goodreads to see yeah. if there were any like good comments about the book and like, good points <laughs> and there was one person calling it intellectual pornography 
Would you agree? Intellectual but, voyeurism. Yeah, that's some like, but like, a, you. Re, she's got other books that do that better. Like, I don't know. In which sense? The pornography. Maybe it's the name dropping of like all these like the founders of the Merve Verlag in Berlin mm. that they visit mm. and Felix yeah. Guattari yeah. and all this. I don't know mm. what he meant, but I was if thinking... it's if it's pornography, I think it's revenge porn because she talks about how she hates all of them and what dicks they are. Yeah, and she while she grants herself a pseudonym. Her real name is obviously still on the cover, but we have this like this lamb called yeah. Sylvie yeah. like she's yeah. pure as the new fall and snow white yeah. oh my god yeah. she is Cassie a stranger Ackett's to name dropping here as well yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. everyone just bam 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 yeah, exactly. gets coming I, for them I got a bit confused at some point because while I was reading this I was reading I'm very into you oh shit like the like, <laughs> Cathy Archer and the uh, Mackenzie Warren emails so at some point like Cathy Archer kind of mentions Chris And then it was kind of like it was. I think it was the same day. Kaviaga <laughs> <laughs> is mentioned in Torbor, and I was like, "What?" Yeah. <laughs> My brain was kind of like, "What am I reading?" <laughs> It's interesting you mentioned that because as I was reading this, I had that sort of same feeling mm. I had when I read. I'm very into you. It's mm. that same sort of, I'm really excited about this and I'm not sure why, but I think it has something to do with nostalgia for a time yeah. that was that I kind of know something about. <laughs> yeah. I think certainly I would say I am very into would fit the label of intellectual porn very mm. well. I think um, this, like, I don't know, I, I, don't, I think that is to reduce its emotional complexity quite a lot. And now that There's we're no talking, pizza delivery, so it's just... <laughs> and now that we're talking about that name dropping, what strikes me is that this is a really dark novel, really, um, I wouldn't say depressing, but a little no. bit depressed. Um, it's it's in a torpor. Yeah. But it's also very, in terms of this relationship at least, and like uh, giving a voice to this person that you don't know what he's thinking, uh, and it's her ex-husband, it's very fair. Mm. And it's like, it wants to do him justice. It's not going to reduce him and be like a, yeah. an angry ex-wife, uh, mm. going like he was such a dick. Um, he seems like a real person with mm. his own issues and he's doing mm. what, the best he can. Yeah. Mm. Which is strange because at one yeah at once it's very dark but it's also very fair and then all this name dropping occurs where she she's not very kind <laughs> to the academic yeah. environment that surrounds them and then it's also seemed a little bit like the frustrations that you have that you can't get out uh, on the that you can't take out on the person that you may feel deserve them because they were the ones who made you unhappy. Mm. It's just pointed at all the other people. Yeah. That's probably the healthiest way to go about things. <laughs> but I, but that's again with the like, I don't know if it's like the morality of the story that I like, or, or if you can call it the morale of you can't solve anything by talking about it because these people don't talk. I mean, they don't solve anything either, but there's not that like... Um, but I think, not in the end or... Uh, I, I, I think, if I we think, just... Talk about it. Then. But I think they do solve something. I mean, they don't like resolve in the kind of big catharsis sense, but mm. they do like they figure out how to go on with living. And there's this unspoken agreement that Lily is the one that sort of carries well, them, yeah. carries their relationship through the thing where they'll yeah. project At everything least that's onto the unspoken her. agreement that we imagine is again and, and um, like from her point of view. But like the reason she's so fair is because like she <clears throat> has listened to him and the reason that he is presented as being relatively fair 
in appraising her is that he's listened like there has been communication it's just that there's something irresolvable about each of them which means they can't be together and that's what because the thing is like they don't work together but they have you know nothing but sort of affection for the other one and i think that's that's what's really nice about it and that's why it stops it from like becoming a depressing book and just is a book and a kind of a Yeah, it's not like weirdly uncomfortable to read because mm. it doesn't seem like a scorned sort of ex-wife. He was such a dick. He did everything to me. It seems like, obviously, we only have her perspective on it, but it seems like she's quite willing to take his perspective into account. But there is also even a point that I, it's somewhere in the page that I can find um, where it's like, Jerome says to Sylvie, um, I married you because you wanted us to be together. I had many girlfriends, but you insisted on us getting married. And that's what has happened. Like, mm. that is how it is. And I thought that was actually quite cathartic to, like, actually read it. Mm. Yeah, because she's been, she's sort of admitted it throughout the books that she yeah. kind of bullied him into marrying yeah. her. Yeah, and then there is, like... It's quoted. He, mm. Yeah, he says it. Yeah. So I think it kind of solves everything. And I don't think it's presented in like, he doesn't love me. He doesn't want to be with me. It's like more like this has been happening and then we ended up here. Yeah. I think that's the fairness about the thing yeah. as well. It's just like, I I gave you what you thought you wanted, but it turned out you wanted a different thing from what you'd expressed. And that's unfortunate <laughs> for both of us for, yeah. for both of us because now we're here I didn't really want to make you that sad you are that sad yeah. here we are mm. <laughs> now I'm sad the dog's okay though <laughs> for now <laughs> but what I liked about it is that I thought I uh, I thought this uh, fairness seemed tense yeah um, not necessarily forced but she doesn't grant the same fairness to all these people around them that they're visiting like mm. all the academics at Felix uh, Guattari's loft and the people that they're visiting yeah. in in Berlin and well, all the ones around them but yeah. that's the thing that it it has like striked me through the whole and here I think it's like even more direct <laughs> it's like this rationality over a sentimental relationship which I think is just I mean it's fair but it's just so weird I think that also like, has to do with the distance because like she she doesn't write it as it's happening she writes it several years later where she's yeah, already but, written two other books and she yeah. still hates the people she still uh, hates the people that, that yeah. summer <laughs> nothing has been forgiven <laughs> she's only human <laughs> yeah. I, I, I hate people I've never spoken because to because she's yeah. kind of like a cunt yeah I mean they were guests at these people houses and they employed uh, at least one of them and all uh, and yeah I don't know I, it was probably been held to be there but I just like that she has like she showed Fang. I guess she's honest about that, her feelings because yeah, yeah. I think a lot of well, I, I like to think that other people like me make snap judgments about yeah. other people, and it's nice to sort of. <laughs> yeah. hear but that I think and that other people can hold a grudge. Yeah, <laughs> but I think that's also like so humanizing from like thinking about like name dropping. You know, you have these academics who you just know because of their work, mm-hmm. and I think this kind of like very sentimental reactions actually humanizes them mm-hmm. 
which I think is very interesting in relation to how she treats the sentimental relationship, which directly is what you would feel like more attached to your feelings. Like, like if we talk about rational and irrational, it would be like the most irrational part of you, right? To like, someone has broken my heart or like, you know, like someone has left me or whatever, like he's a dick, but this is not happening at all. But then we have the academics, all this like name dropping, which is like we would think as this like untouchable things and like we think about them through their work and like, and then she just like gets angry at them and like treats them like that. I think that's like so humanizing. It's also quite sort of, it's quite, it's quite a relief to read because you, yeah. you hear about these, oh, you know, put them on a pedestal. Yeah, exactly. Nothing wrong, like apply their theories to everything. And then yeah. you have Chris Grass going, well, he's a bit of a dick. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she like, does it in all her books. Yeah. And yeah. it's really, I feel it's like the outsider's view on this like, academic wanking mm-hmm. of how you're going to do and what the career move is and what you need to do and yeah. 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 people and yeah all the things you have to put up with with as but, well I mean and it's also because she owes them nothing like like her relationship with Jerome is like one that is based on a kind of affection and like a built relationship she turns to these people's houses and sure like maybe she gets a glass of wine but like it's half the time they speak French to Jerome because they don't but I also have a feeling that she's jealous I mean she wants their job because you know she can do it at least as well as they can and certainly it's also a massive class thing as well Mm. like that's Mm. also what's really nice about all of her books is that there's this really really like strong theme of class running through all of them Mm. yeah and it's Mm. not like she sort of ends up in the it's not like it is kind of a rags to riches but it's Mm. not like she well and now I'm also part of this Mm. class it's like well, they were all dicks and I'm kind of over here, but now they want to talk to me. So that's interesting. Yeah. 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 But Neos, I know that you noticed something uh, on reading this book and maybe reading all of the books of like how they speak to each other or maybe how they don't speak to each other. The Yeah, when I'm, I think it's like kind of like very related to what we just, we were just saying. And it's the fact that everything in between them is so direct and like so emotionless in a way. Like there is no, I don't know, I, I felt that there, there wasn't love in any book. Like there was a lot about like a sentimental relationship, but no actual, actual like, yeah, heartbreaking or like a pure semen- sentimentality. But she does, they do kind of have that, just not directly to each mm. other. They but, sort of, mm. towards the dog, and then they both know that the dog is sort of a... Yeah, they communicate yeah. their love through the dog. There's, yeah, there's only the occasional parts where she kind of evaluates it, like the kind of rush of the first few times she met Silver. But like, always she like writes it like, what a foolish girl that was. Mm. <laughs> but it's, I, I feel that everything is like very, like with some kind of either a goal or a purpose. Yeah, I which think- Which at least in my head is, doesn't really relate much to a sentimental relationship. This is but like- I, sorry, I think that's true because in this book, their goal, they have a, they're set on a goal. They're going to Romania uh, from Berlin to adopt this baby. So I think that's totally right. And then I love Dick. While Sylvain is still there before she leaves him, they write uh, letters to this guy called Dick. So what binds them together is this sense of purpose. Mm. Yeah. And it's also in I Love Dick, they have sex for the first time in a really long time yeah. when they start writing these letters. Yeah. Then they have something together to do. Yeah. yeah. There is like, I, I don't think there is anything 
in the relationship that is just like pure passion? No. Like there is always like something and like the way she explains her relationship started. It was like this like lunch dates <clears throat> where they would have sex. And then at some point she knows they have different uh, girlfriends and she wants to be in a relationship. So they do this and that. And then she gets the abortions because there there is something they don't want, which is like kid uh, or Jerome doesn't want that. So then she does that in order to like, so they're like, I don't know, everything is presented as facts and purposes and objectives. And I just, I I feel that it's in a way, it's like more, yeah, it's like this lack of passion, which is kind of embedded into a sentimental relationship, I feel. <laughs> I think it's, it's not, it kind of reads like in your description of it, it's like a, like a um, implicit, critique of capitalism and that because like they're so bound together by the pragmatism of like reproducing mm-hmm. their life it's so bound together with, like we're going to have these houses we're going to rent out we need to renovate these houses so, yeah, we can exactly. rent out, so we need to get the property thing but also to facilitate that you will um will uh, have your lecture money to do that so even though he's going around like preaching the kind of like a uh, French post-structuralist left people uh he's it, their entire relationship is based on the pragmatism of how to survive yeah and that becoming not enough over time is not surprising. Yeah, but it's, I guess my, I guess my point would be like, I, I, yeah, I'm not surprised it failed. No, I, and I think that <laughs> it's, it's kind of a relief to see a marriage sort of portrayed on such a calculated as, yeah. as the product, the, the product of a calculated sort of series yeah. of events, because I think. I think a fair amount of marriages yeah exactly do mm. and i guess come what, about that way yeah i guess what's interesting is that because you like the setup might be a bit different of what you think of a traditional marriage just because you know all this like intellectuals or like you know wanting to make movies or stuff like that you know in a very naive way you could think of like this people just like thinking about it in a different way but it's just like yeah it's a calculation it's like some mm. kind of contract like social contract also happening in this mm. environment but then i would argue it like the relationship probably lasted as long as it did because they think about it in a different way or like i think if they were to be more more conventional in their approach towards love and relationships i think they probably would have not gotten together, I don't think. They wouldn't have gotten together, no. It wouldn't have been like, oh, you've got all this leather. Yeah. Oh, great. Uh, oh, you have seven <laughs> other girlfriends that you keep on a strict rotation. Uh. But I mean, that's the thing because she says that in the beginning, and I think even as this book happens, she thinks she can replace his unhappiness with happiness, mm. and that's mm. how stuff works. Yeah. Um, so I would say that she is, um, she's in love, and there is no doubt that she's like brainwashing herself and like choosing mm. to not see things as I think you, Sarah, said earlier uh, on, you said earlier, Naos, mm. um, of like choosing your perspective yeah. and like just sorting some things out, like can't yeah. deal with this. This is not happening. Mm. Um, mm. I choose not to see this in you. Mm. And then it comes later, like full front. Uh, yeah, after the divorce where she doesn't have to like try to nurture mm. these feelings about him. Mm. It's like, yeah. oh, okay, I can actually look at these things now. Yeah. Yeah. or maybe just like five minutes before the divorce <laughs> <laughs> at least yeah um 
But Nails, I also know that you weren't too fond of Aliens and Anorexia when we read that last year. No. I remember that to you, it's like very middle class, very white privilege. Uh, how about this one? I mean, this is two white academics going yeah. to adopt a baby in Romania. I um, think it is. <laughs> I feel it's important though, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's still there. Uh, I think it's less. I think I get more sympathy for Sylvie. Because mm? I think it's like that part, like maybe it's because she hates everyone else around. <laughs> and I can really see how. But I also I also think that there's less self-pityness and it's more fairness of like, this is like that. And mm. we were, and he was doing this for me and I was doing, and I was ignoring maybe at the moment. I think the class thing is a bit, a bit like toned down. Or yeah. presented more directly, maybe. I don't know. I think it's also because like her position in this book is different because it's a different time. Like yeah. when she's like um, someone with a bunch of money to try and fail to make a film, it seems like it's a vanity project. But in this one, she doesn't even have any feet. In it. Like she has the glass of wine that Felix hands to her as he walks in the. It's yeah. not really. And I think there is a like maybe there the or what I could feel from the main character here there was still a bit more of like trying to like still failing but still mm. trying and like not looking that much into what she was looking at that aliens and anorexia which is like yeah i have this bunch of money and like i'm doing this and that but still these people is taking like there was like all these characters right like uh, taking advantage of her when they were doing the recording in aliens and anorexia mm. And here I feel that it's more direct. Like mm. I think she really, the character seems to be very disappointed at herself at some point mm. for not succeeding. Mm. And I think that's way more real. Mm. And there is less of privilege, but more of like acknowledgement of where she stands and like what she actually wants and is not getting. Mm. Which kind of like refers to the fact, like what we were just saying about being surrounded by like French people not speaking and like her not speaking French and kind of thinking that they are assholes but in a way maybe a bit of like envy because she knows that she can she could be doing what they do yeah I think that's way more real yeah mm -hmm. and there is yeah I, th I think it's more relatable and I think it's better portrayed mm -hmm. when we're thinking about mm. class Yeah, it's true because, yeah, she's more, uh, maybe, as you say, realistic yeah. about where she is in life and, like, yeah. what's happening and stuff. But I, I just, I sort of miss a little bit as well the narrator from uh, Aliens and Anorexia that is, like, has the money exactly to make a movie, an independent movie, her own movie, yeah. <clears throat> and feels like Mother Teresa for uh, creating employment for this casting crew. <laughs> and then they, they aren't totally... Um, gracious about it mm. and they have demands and stuff and yeah she doesn't like that at all and and it's terrible for her it's a terrible experience <laughs> yeah i love that <laughs> i mean that's what i can sort of identify with i mean I, i want to be the other one but i probably am the aliens and character <laughs> more um but yeah and that Yeah, if we say that it's the same narrative, maybe that's not even a very relevant discussion, but it's it's two very different points of 
of looking mm. at the world around you. Yeah. Uh, but she's also in two very mm. different situations. Mm. Yeah, which I mean, like, is really nicely illustrated in the kind of like philosophical tradition she works in of just you know why why would this person even have the same name at this point? Like you know when you when you're totally dependent on um, the person you're in a relationship with and that relationship is breaking down, that's a very different person to the person years later who's trying to take a film to the Berlin Film Festival. It's like you're not. These are different people, but they're also the same person, and there's like kind of like yeah, there's and a relationship. I don't know. I mean, she's apparently also identifying with these characters in uh, yeah. in this novel, yeah. and in Aliens and Anorexia, she's talking about. I think it's in the first chapter about this woman called Katja Perry, who is hitchhiking up and down New Zealand, mm. and she's only there for like maybe five pages. The story about her, and it ends up with her getting raped because she's a woman out alone, but. She also gets raped because she's a woman who lacks the critical sense uh, of reading literature and fiction, especially. So she identifies with the characters. But then when, when I read this and and they were identified with the characters of this correct novel, it was what's going on? What will happen in the end? It's a wonderful in, like evocation of someone's fallibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, final question. Would you recommend this book, Sarah? I would indeed. To anyone who has a crazy aunt who loves to talk about that time she had tea with Franco or whatever. Went to Romania. (laughs) Went to Romania, tried to adopt a baby. Mm -hmm. It's that kind of book. It's a riveting tale. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. No, I'm serious. I do sound sarcastic. (laughs) That's just my tone of voice. No, I thought it was wonderful. I couldn't put it down. You, Macon? I, I, I certainly would. I think it's... My second favorite after I Love Dick in the trilogy. Um, <laughs> out of three, it's number out two. Out of three, it's <laughs> uh, and it's just Strong. it. It makes it makes the story make a lot of sense. It makes it makes um, reading Aliens worth it, and it's great. There's such slow slow tragedy is what I like to think of it as. Oh, and it's, uh, a slow burn. Slow tragedy. Nice road slow trip tragedy. tragedy. Road trips. Slow road trip <laughs> tragedy. Slow fight tragedy. <laughs> slow fight. Slow fight. <laughs> two beers and yet here I am coining. Slow fight trip. <laughs> what about you, Dale? Yes. Yeah, I would actually. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it made me appreciate a lot Aliens and Anorexia. Mm. Yeah. Good book. It's uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I think it's very nice that it's a trilogy, yeah. and I cannot find a better word than nice, but it is actually more than nice. Mm. Great. Not nice plus. Yeah, ten or twelve, in the Danish scale. Oh, okay. Ah. Ah. For our international <laughs> listeners, look, look up the Danish grading system. <laughs> I would recommend it as well to anyone, as Sarah said, with a crazy aunt or a doc or anyone who's ever been married or, or gone a on a road trip or been in a relationship or thought yes. about Romania. Thought yeah. about Romania. Yeah. yeah. Like all, the, all the Holocaust. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Hereby recommended for Mark Books. And next month, we'll be back and Sarah will host. And she's picked out a book for us. It is called Memoirs of a Polar Bear by Yoko Tawara. And um, I know it features Knut of Berlin Zoo fame and his fictional, or maybe not fictional, grandmother and mother, I think. I think his mom abandoned him. So I hope we get the full story. (laughs) Oh, yeah. 
And it's also, gonna be a heartbreak book. Also, I should mention that Shivana is a bit of a Knut aficionado. I am. I have to admit, I am a bit of a Knut expert. <laughs> so, I luckily am, I will be here. Yeah, I'm hearing about Knut for the first time. Yeah, so right it's now, sad. We will educate you, Macon. We will. I and will. Also, the author. I've just been told that the author is coming to Louisiana Literature this year. You gonna set up an interview? Mm, nope. You could. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's gonna be translated to Danish, so it's something for everyone. In, I'm <laughs> everyone, just saying, everyone, in the Danish context. In, in, in Denmark and within range of Gentofte. Yeah. A, <laughs> but what Sarah is also saying is that we are your trendsetters since first 2014. Movers. Yeah. First movers. First movers. Whether you hear Battle of Dick first? Here. Mm-hmm. Here. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Let's really hammer that home. <laughs> Culture. <laughs> Books. <laughs> So sell a lot of copies of *Leaving the Adventure Station*. Has he written anything new that we can No. No. I am checking regularly, and he has not. You could read the poems. You've never done poems here. No, we never will. Thank here. you. <laughs> <laughs> There's an essay, *The Hatred of Poetry*. Maybe that's I've more that suitable. So and See, I think it's. Maybe we will do that. <laughs> 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 but that, that's it for now though <laughs> what an outro